This is a session from a Southwest Paediatric Study Day focusing on microbiology for paediatricians. Hope you enjoy. Today, um, I'm going to go through, hopefully I've pictured at the right level. It's fairly informal, so do, you know, stop and ask questions if you've got any. Um, I'm going to go through some cases that we've had uh, here uh, and elsewhere kind of recently, just to highlight um, the microbiological aspects, mainly talking about sort of testing and uh, recent epidemiology of the common pathogens and a little bit about antibiotic prescribing and infection control. And these kind of syndromes are the ones that I'll go through today. Okay, moving on. Uh, so uh, I'm going to go through the three uh, cases today. Uh, and uh, no surprises instead of guessing what they might be about, because I'm going to tell you that what the syndrome is about and then ask you some questions, hopefully. So the first case that we've had is a case that we had quite recently here in the Children's Hospital, some of you might have been involved with, um, of a child who had bacterial meningitis. Uh, and this is a quote that I've stolen from uh, a study that was published about two years ago now, uh, that was looking at the management of suspected uh, pediatric meningitis um, um, age sort of multi-center uh, cohort study. And their kind of headline was the incidence of bacterial meningitis in children in developed countries has decreased significantly. Why do you think this might be? Yes, absolutely. So vaccination, particularly conjugate vaccines, are play sort of a key part in that. Sorry. Uh, so yeah, vaccination, that's the key really. Uh, and what proportion of sort of childhood meningitis do you think might be caused by bacteria? Yes, absolutely. So the biggest cause really is viral. Um, uh, so bacteria only kind of in children sort of four to 19% of infections are caused by bacterial infection. So absolutely right, the majority that we see are sort of viral meningitis. And now more than ever, I'm gonna talk about diagnostics a bit, because our diagnostics are better, we're much better at telling you actually, this is the pathogen that's causing their infection. Um, so this is like some old data now, uh, sort of 1980s to sort of 2001, um, and looking at some different Sort of the top, what used to be some of the top three causes for uh, bacterial uh, meningitis, and uh, the uh, C vaccine was introduced in sort of 1999, uh, and the rates have sort of dropped off quite significantly. Similarly, with Haemophilus influenza B, the Hib vaccine was introduced in about 1990. We rarely see it. You know, we, we never see it. In fact, most cases invasive Haemophilus disease that we see are sort of non-fightable. that we're seeing are not like in the vaccine as well um, and trends will change over time as well so they won't be static necessarily it's often sort of a changing picture and that 
often there are other things that are driving these kind of changes as well, not just vaccinations, but antibiotics is another thing. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it can be a bit uh, kind of, if you just look at this and think, oh, it was dropping anyway, you know, this is not the whole picture. There's, there'll be lots of confounding factors mm -hmm. in it. So you do have to take it sort of with a bit of salt. Um, this is look at, looking at invasive meningococcal disease. Um, and uh, here we can see, again, the, the kind of the highest age group that's, the, the, uh, the age group that's mainly affected by this are kind of the under uh, one age group. Um, and this is looking at the different serotypes. So there are about 13 different serotypes of meningococcus that we know about. Uh, MEN-C used to be the big one, uh, but since vaccination, uh, that's kind of dropped right down. And then it used to be MEN-B that we were seeing quite a lot of. Uh, and as you are probably familiar, the MEN-B vaccine was introduced in 2015. Um, so we are seeing actually much less and less cases of meningitis B now. The ones that we're seeing now more are kind of these weird serotypes uh, that we didn't really used to see before. So W used to be the one that was cl classically associated with travel to Hajj. We probably don't have many children going on their pilgrimages, but we see this in elderly patients, W135, um, which is like a funny serotype because it can give you quite unusual presentations. So not just meningitis or sepsis, but you get sort of pneumonias and septic arthritis and the patients have sort of a pericardial, um, sort of bacterial pericarditis of W135. So you can get strange presentations like that. Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. On, this, on that graph, it looks like, well, I'm sitting on for 10 years, 8 years yes. of data. We're not really making an impact on the numbers of meningitis, uh, sorry, the invasive meningococcus disease. Yeah. So the overall numbers are changing, just changing which serotype we're yes. pushing up and down. Yeah. Is that because you haven't had any advances in? Yeah, it will be a combination of things. It's hard to answer that really because I'm not a public health doctor no, no. who will know a lot more it's about. Really yeah, and, and also we're seeing this is all age groups, not just children. Uh, and a lot of what we see yeah. is yeah. in their old comorbid patients who have kind of worse outcomes. So yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. and this like W strain, if you got that in kids, would that would that be less severe? Can be, yeah, can be. I must say, I haven't seen one in a child okay. yet. Yeah. So, so our numbers in, in kids are probably decreasing. Yes, yeah, and it's mainly B that we see okay. in the unvaccinated groups or the children who are too young to be vaccinated. Are they going to introduce the ACWY vaccine? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, given now at age 14, uh, but the vaccination schedule, as you know, is kind of constantly changing, so watch this space. Uh, so this is actually an adult patient who I saw a few months ago uh, who had who came in kind of classically with this, this rash and was quite unwell. Um, but do you know what the mortality rate of um, invasive meningococcus might be? In adults? In all. Yeah, in all age groups. 25? Any others? It's actually 10%. Yeah, so that, that's in kind of all age groups. Um, in terms of carriage, so some patients can kind of carry meningococcus in their throats as well. Um, in, your, in your kind of population of kids, it's about 5%. Uh, the highest rates of carriage is in sort of teenage years, early 20s, where it's about 25%. And in the elderly patients, about sort of 8%. And some people can just carry it for a while, can 
few months, up to about 20 months in some studies. And if you've got chronic carriage, those patients are less likely to actually get clinical infection. But the problem with that is that they can then pass it on to other people. So that's why prophylaxis is important. And we'll talk about that at the end. Um, so, sorry, that was a bit of a preamble, but this is the kind of the case that I wanted to talk to you about. So this was a, a little boy who was two and a half, who was otherwise sort of fit and well, uh, and his history of sort of fever and you know, not feeling as well, uh, and a bit drowsy and confused, and he'd been unwell for three days. Uh, and he'd seen the GP sort of that morning, he said he was probably likely tonsillitis, uh, given some oral antibiotics, uh, but parents weren't happy, so he were um, sort of presented to Children's Hospital. Uh, and when he was clapped in, this is sort of what was noted by the doctor who, who saw this child, so that they were cold to elbows and cold feet uh, and responding just to pain, which is a bit concerning. So the GPS um, was uh, 11. And those were his bloods there on admission. So, you know, um, quite impressive CRP, low pH and a high lactate. So what other investigations would you do on this child if you were the person kind of seeing them? Yeah, great. <laughs> yes, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Very good. What kind of throat swab? Yes, thank you. And you can do viral as well. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I mean, if, if they're drowsy, you want to see them, then you want to probably put them in CT scan. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's it. Um, say he wasn't drowsy, and there's you know, a bit of concern about meningitis, and you're going to do some CSF. What um, what tests are you going to ask for on the CSF? PCR. What PCRs are you going to ask for? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Good, yeah, yeah, good, yeah, that's good. So yeah, I mean, these are might be some of the tests that you want to do. Uh, and on the CSF, so microscopy, gram stain culture, PCR, so ask for bacterial and viral. Um, and I'll keep talking about this because that's one thing we're not very good at doing. Clinical students generally kind of across the board at asking for bacterial PCRs. Everyone's very good at asking for viruses, which is great, uh, but they kind of forget the bacterial bit. Uh, and then the biochemistry is also often quite helpful uh, when you're clearing meningitis. Um, so uh, oh, I won't go into this in too much detail. This is just like a, a review that was looking at meningitis uh, in the absence of CSF uh, pleocytosis uh, in a lumbar puncture. Uh, and they basically found that meningitis in the absence of um, pleocytosis can occur, but it's quite rare. Uh, and if the clinical picture is of sort of bacterial meningitis and your CSF isn't helpful, send your samples for molecular testing, do your blood cultures, and discuss them with us and consider repeating um, CSF. And can you do pneumococcal PCR in the urine as well? 
we don't do it in children so much uh, because kids can have um, a lot of them can have a, a transient uh, pneumococcus um, so you can do blood that's a better test but again blood uh, you need to interpret that in co with caution so I, I wouldn't do it just as a standalone test uh, but it's helpful in a child say like this if they've got you know abnormal uh, you know GCS where you can't do uh, an LP uh, you can do it uh, as, as part of kind of a, a, a battery of tests that will be just another piece in the puzzle basically uh, but if you see as you know a blood pneumococcal PCR that's positive in isolation it's very difficult to interpret that because a lot of kids who will just have you know will be a bit snotty could be pneumococcal PCR positive and we don't really know what that means because a lot of them can just have transient infection. Um, so this call called bacterial meningitis call, which again is kind of helpful if um, you know with the back trying to delineate whether they've got bacterial meningitis or not. And then you get this kind of different number of points based on the CSF, the protein, the white cell count, the blood in CSF, uh, plus whether they've got seizures. And if they've got a score somewhere between two to six they're more likely to have uh, bacterial meningitis. And this was just um, a meta-analysis looking at the kind of validation of this score, uh, and they found that it actually had quite a good sensitivity, even 99%, but the specificity wasn't very good. But it's got a, quite a good negative predictive value, so that's another thing that you could use. Um, this is kind of comparing sort of culture versus PCR. So this is a, sort of, um, a Brazilian kind of paper that was looking at culture versus PCR in the diagnosis of bacterial meningitis. Um, so the, the problem with culture is that it's great if it's positive, but most of the ones that you see will be culture negative. Just one dose of antibiotics, even if it's oral, is enough to kill bacteria. Uh, so that, that's the trouble with culture, that very rarely is it positive, so only 17% of these sort of 50 something patients had positive culture, whereas the PCR is much more helpful. So this, in this PCR panel that they used, they just had three targets looking at three kind of commonest organisms for them, so strep pneumoniae, Neisseria meningitis, and Haemophilus influenza, and they picked up an extra sort of 24 cases just with um, the, doing the PCR. And that so main cases of much longer do they describe? Yes, yeah. yes, that's the other thing. How long do they? Um, we don't know exactly. Uh, it depends. The patients who are immunosuppressed, they can secrete it, or we can pick it up for a, a lot longer. So potentially um, uh, up to a week, maybe longer. Yeah. So we sometimes get to know where we we failed in our previous two questions. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Potentially, if you're doing your LP the next day. Yes. Then probably PCR should be. Exactly, and actually, the cell count doesn't drop straight away as well. Yeah. So even if the LP is delayed, uh, now we can do molecular tests. But it's helpful to know have they got lots of cells still, uh, and we see that sort of not infrequently in the patients who, in adults especially, we kind of tend to sometimes we would re LP them, and it can take a, quite a while if they had a very high white cell count to actually clear that. Uh, to show you quickly on how to request it on ice, some people get confused with the so CSF. Uh, so the viral stuff comes under profiles, and people are quite good at requesting that. Um, unfortunately, they're not all in the same place, which is really confusing. Uh, so the bacterial PCRs are under reference tests, uh, and you have to take the meningococcal and pneumococcal PCR, and do a paired sample with the blood as well. That's often helpful. 
uh, and we need um, sort of uh, 0.5 to a mil to do the spell count, the gram stain, and the culture, uh, and we need about uh, a litre mil to do the PCRs. Um, so we've talked a bit about CT heads, I probably won't dwell on this when you would ask for a CT head, but in this child clearly he's sort of confused and his CTS wasn't right, so you would want to get a scan for him. And this is actually the scan that was reported, and the uh, image of the scan isn't great, but um, yeah, basically they said there was an almost complete effacement of the CSF spaces in the uh, cerebral convexity, um, and impression of brain swelling, and possibly some meningeal uh, inflammation, uh, which is all a bit worrying, um, and the LP was delayed. Um, so this is my next question to you. Based on that history and these scan results, um, who would give him steroids, or would you give him steroids? Yes. This is sort of as he's presenter. Say, is it going to appear out? But that's a good question that you. Why did you ask that? Because it may be within within four hours yeah it's a good yeah good question yeah Is, would anyone not give steroids i mean we don't know what the causative organism might be with this would anyone say actually we don't know okay yes very good yeah so if they're less three the months you yeah yeah so most of you Why think. Yes. Good. Yeah. So yeah. Sepsis. Sepsis. Steroids and sepsis are a bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so steroids have always been a bit controversial about whether to give or not. And actually, most of the data that we've got are from all trials, and they were before the conjugate vaccines were introduced. Um, so you have to take this sort of with a little bit of a kind of pinch of salt. But basically, the, ration, the, kind of the mechanism is that sort of there's cerebral injury, uh, which is mainly kind of post-mediated, and that generates an inflammatory response because these bacteria are releasing lots of toxins. So the argument for giving steroids would be that they would sort of dampen down that response uh, and reduce cerebral injury. Uh, and it's best given sort of well before the first dose of antibiotics. Conversely, the argument, again, some people might say, actually, we don't want to give that uh, because it will uh, reduce the inflammation of the meninges uh, and thereby reduce penetration of antibiotics in, into the CSF. Has it been shown that yeah, the actual any benefit is of an improved uh, hearing? Uh, Good. Excellent. So I'm coming on to that. Kind of outcome. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah. So this is kind of the latest Cochrane review, uh, kind of um, the evidence. I mean, this they sort of update this periodically, and it was last updated in 2015. And they looked at quite a large number of patients, so 4,000 patients, of which over half were children. And exactly as your colleague has said, what they found overall was that the rates of hearing loss uh, and long-term neurological sequelae um, was uh, better. It didn't improve overall mortality. Uh, and it's mainly uh, reduced hearing, severe hearing loss in children with hemophilus influenza meningitis. So actually, HIB, we don't really see much 
like you said, at all, really at all anymore. But yeah, it isn't. It's not really shown to improve outcomes. It's minimal, and it's really lost. So can you can you differentiate that in presentation? Is there anything that gives you that clue? Well, exactly. Is it just the unemployment? Uh, Haemophilus influenza B, do you yeah. mean? Do they, would you, if you've got an unimmunised child, would yeah. you be more likely to give Yeah, vaccine? yeah, you might consider it. But I agree, it's very hard based on the history to know what the pathogen yeah. is, and that's part of the problem. Um, so this is from the NICE guidelines, which <coughs> mainly kind of what all of you have been saying, so it's not advised in children who are under three months, and not advised for meningococcal septicemia. Um, so they advise to children over three months uh, to give septicemia warning for this. And this is the thing that your colleague was mentioning, that these are other clues that might be helpful. So frankly, parallel CSF, uh, so CSF count is over a thousand. And if the bacteria, I'm, I'm not sure about this, the bacteria on gram stain, because it depends what type of bacteria you see, you know. If you see gram-negative diptococci, we can be fairly confident that's going to be um, the meningococcal meningitis, so we wouldn't give steroids in that. Uh, and a raised CSF uh, white cell count, uh, uh, raised CSF protein, sorry. Uh, and as, as we've already mentioned, ideally you should give it within four hours of starting antibiotics. Yeah. I've got two questions. <laughs> Firstly, I thought um, previously they were talking about being what we wanted to give the steroids for. Is that old? No, no. no. So what we see mainly now is pneumococcus. Um, and although the evidence, some evidence actually has shown that there's quite high rates of, I'll talk about it in kind of one of the latest slides, one of the biggest complications that we see with meningitis is deafness, and the highest rates of deafness are actually with strep pneumomeningitis. So, yeah. So it's still relevant to yes. you getting that? Yeah. And secondly, <coughs> this to me is not practical in clinical, yeah. in clinical yeah. world. In the, you either need to give it when you're doing exactly or you yeah. and then you look back and get oh well yeah the white cell count was really high yeah discuss those time. patients with us because we can help you with some of the clues about because we're thinking so we well there is an on-call microbiologist <laughs> so yeah well, I mean if, if a child yeah I mean if it's I'm a child with meningitis yeah. I personally I would rather know yeah. about that and those are the ones that you should be ringing about okay. um because we will be thinking of what's the likely pathogen in this child, and if we think it's pneumococcus, then yes, I would definitely give steroids. I guess if you've got a child that's unwell, you're concerned about meningitis because of their immunological state. Yes. But you haven't got current CSF, whatever, and you do well to. Yeah. Um, so you've got none of those, so you haven't got any of those to say. Yeah. So if you're going to give it, aren't you? Yeah. So you're treating pneumococcal and HIV, but not meningitis? Yes. So if you think it's pneumococcal, yeah. and that's no. what they're <coughs> suggesting, they would give it. Yes, yeah. So if they've got a rash, they, that's typical. Yeah. So if they've got a rash, they'd give it, otherwise, probably yeah. this yeah. kid was also presenting with time sepsis rather than just meningitis. Yeah. So yeah. I'd be really, really quite concerned mm. about that. Yeah. So discuss those ones with us. And so this was the CSF that was done after 48 hours on antibiotics. Uh, and actually, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was clumped, the CSF of. So the microbiology, the lab couldn't really tell us anything particularly helpful. It didn't grow anything, which again is not surprising after 48 hours of um, uh, after 48 hours of antibiotics. But the the glucose and the protein kind of are, you know, clues that would be helpful. Uh, and I think we've talked a little bit about kind of 
Often in in this child, what what do you think might be the bacteria? Something. Anyone? Okay. Be brave. <laughs> We're saying pneumococcal. Yeah, I knew not say it was pneumococcal. Um, so, in terms of causes, I mean, I won't label this point because you know this is stuff that you will know already. Uh, but think about kind of the age of the child. That that's really what's helpful in trying to work out what the likely pathogen is. Uh, in the very young ones, the ones that we mainly tend to see uh, in the neonates are you know, group B strep, uh, E. coli rarely. Listeria we hardly ever see anymore. We see probably maybe one case every couple of years. It's very rare, uh, and they don't tend to do very well normally. Gram-negative again, other gram-negative things like Tempsiella, again, they're, they're less common. So these two are kind of the most common ones, E. coli and group B strep, uh, in those who are under one month. One to three months is a combination of those two, uh, plus Neisseria meningitis uh, and a strep pneumonia. So these are the ones who might not have been, uh, might not have vaccination or too young to be vaccinated or have just one dose of vaccine. And in older children, it's the same as adults actually. These two are the ones we see meningo and strep pneumonia, like I said, hemophilus, we see rarely now. Uh, not at the mo. Well, nothing. There's no specific PCR for it. Um, but we can do. I'll talk a little bit about PCR testing that we can do later because there's the broader range of PCRs that you can do looking at lots of different targets. Actually, one of my colleagues here is quite interested at uh, is bringing kind of like a multi-panel target so that at the front door we can tell you it's this bug which that would just make all of this a lot, lot easier. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's the problem. Uh, then antibiotics. I mean, you know about tetanomox uh, or um, you know uh, for the older ones, it's tetrataxine. Um, so penicillin-resistant pneumococci, we're seeing um, a few of um, in children who have travelled outside the UK or had lots of calls with antibiotics. Um, and this is looking at sort of invasive pneumococcal disease uh, in uh, Europe. And in these countries, you can see that uh, the darker countries are the sort of the bad ones, people Spain, France, Portugal, Italy. Um, they have higher rates of penicillin non-susceptibility. Uh, in in uh, the UK, it's only sort of, sort of 3 to 4%, so our rates of pen non-susceptibility is low. But if they come from these countries, you think about adding vancomycin also. Does that to do with the strain or with the uh, antibacterial yeah, prescribing? Uh, yeah, mainly antibiotic prescribing. Yeah. Uh, and just to talk briefly about kind of uh, impact of PCVs on the incidence of um, invasive pneumococcal disease in the under two year olds. So um, PCV7 was in about 2007, and then uh, PCV13 was in about 2010. Uh, and actually, most of the ones that we're seeing are uh, the non-vaccine strains that are you know, predictably the ones that we see more of now. And this is showing the same thing. This is some data from here. So we looked at three years' worth of data. This is about 18 patients. Uh, and most of them have got pneumonia. I think about 20% had meningitis. And we looked at all the different serotypes that we saw in those um, 18 children. 
and actually only two of them had a, uh, the three within the PCV 13. All of the rest of these are um, not in the vaccine strain. Okay, uh, and these two cases, I think one was too young to be vaccinated, and one had just had one dose of vaccine. And prior to the vaccine, did you use the ghetto strains? Yes. Yeah. So they picked the ones. The strains that are in the vaccine are the ones that you basically see the most of and were more virulent. So the other ones, though, the ones that aren't in the vaccine, yes. did you used to get them through vaccine as well? Or they kind of emerged? We have more selected them out now with the vaccination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 12F, particularly, is one that we see quite a lot of, even in adults as well. Uh, so going back to this case, um, so he was started on tetraxone and infectivir. And this team actually rightly discussed the, whether they should give steroids or not, because I think it's quite difficult to make that decision. So they discussed it with pediatric um, infectious diseases who suggested to give steroids. Uh, they have a throat swab that has some viruses, okay. Um, and the CSF was negative for viral stuff, but they didn't send it back to your PCR, unfortunately. Um, and this was the MRI that was um, done on this child. I'm not sure how well you can see it actually, uh, but there are bits here and there that are a bit abnormal. Uh, and basically, they think they thought that this might look like sort of multifocal embolic infarct, um, which was indeed concerning. Uh, and actually, they sent blood for pneumococcal PCR, and that's how it was picked up. So the blood was positive for pneumococcal PCR, and actually, when we went back and looked at the history, was classic sort of pneumococcal meningitis um, with kind of septic emboli. Uh, and then subsequently, we sent the CSF off for PCR, which is also positive. What other tests would you do in this child, and how long would you think about kind of treating him for? given that the MRI that, that showed that he's got kind of what looks like embolic infarct. Yeah, very good. So um, hydrocephalus, again, we see kind of um, sometimes with uh, particularly pneumococcal meningitis. So his echo was a normal, so he had a patent foramen nasale with the left to right shunt, and um, he was referred for PFO closure. And actually, he, he went on to have kind of neuroscience and was quite irritable. And on the V-scan, he had bilateral subdurals. Um, so this, again, is not, we see some, rarely sometimes with pneumococcus, but it can be quite aggressive and virulent like that. So um, in the context of the subdurals, strep pneumo and embolic infarct, we would definitely give this child a longer course than just a simple kind of pneumococcal meningitis. So we actually elected to treat him for six weeks. Um, so yeah, this is kind of a complicated pneumococcal meningitis case, not, not the kind of your bound or straightforward ones. How old was he? He was um, two, two and two months. And was it a strain, a pneumococcal strain then not going to go back? So we don't know that because it was PCR and uh, unfortunately we can't type those. So we'd have to, if we had recultured it then we would. Um, but as far as I know, he was um, fully vaccinated. No, yeah, he was fully vaccinated, uh, and I think he's been investigated by PSID for underlying immunodeficiency. But the PFO would have um, certainly contributed 
this mm. as well. And he had a viral prodrome and he picked up viruses. So that's often what happens, as you see quite commonly in a viral prodrome. And then strep pneuma, which is in the NA's pharynx, will get into the bloodstream. Yeah, you've been seeing mm. yeah, you Yes. Say yeah. another. What did you say? He's got cancer through the reduction. Mm. Yeah. The only clinical picture that they can, they can mention is the beam of the blood. Yeah, sometimes they can have a viral program, but that can be true sometimes. Uh, with meningococcal, they tend to have kind of the more rash, right. but not, not everyone has that. So often they can have, yeah, viral or respiratory program or ear symptoms. Those are the ones that are worth asking about. Yes, that's worth asking about. You can get kind of spread to distant sites as well. Endocarditis is rare, but we've had a couple of cases here last year. Bone and joint is the other thing that you can get. So, I'm not sure if I understand saying the history of what you could get antibiotics before the FDY. Yes. So that's the reason why it's. Yeah, because um, his CT was abnormal, so they couldn't do a CSF straight away because his GCS was low and it looked like he had kind of brain swelling. Um, so that, that's why the CSF was delayed. Sorry, can I just ask, if people are yeah. uncompensated, yes. you know, that's all meningitis, how long does it take? So two weeks. So um, this is just, these are the straightforward ones, hopefully the more the ones that you'll be seeing, um, just to summarise kind of how long to treat for. It's, it's very pathogen dependent, and it depends on uh, whether it's complicated or not, and partly how old the child is as well. So group B uh, depends a bit, kind of two to three weeks. We've had a few cases where they've had kind of relapse, uh, especially in the, the kind of the young neonate, so we're a bit cautious with it. Some of them are straightforward and well, so two weeks is fine. Sometimes we give them <coughs> Gram-negative meningitis is kind of bad news, uh, so we give sort of three weeks for that. Listeria is fortunately rare, uh, but three weeks again with amoxicillin plus gentamicin. We usually stop the gentamicin after about a week and just carry on with the amox. Nasir meningitis, actually in adults, we only just give them five days. Um, I think I've tried to convince the pediatricians to do that, but they looked at me like I was going to be that. Um, yeah, strep pneumo is sort of, um, yeah, two, so two weeks if it's uncomplicated, in answer to your question. Uh, Hibs, 10 days. The culture negative, we have a lot of these, you know, we're trying to decide pragmatically do we think this is bacterial, how long should we treat for, but this is what the NICE guidelines recommend. 14 days, so it's actually not, mm, yeah, that, but yeah, 14 days or 10 days if they're more than two months. Uh, and this is just to mention quickly about uh, prevention of secondary cases. So notify all the cases uh, based on the clinical syndrome if you think they've got bacterial meningitis. Um, and so what public health do with this information is that if they think someone's got confirmed or probable meningococcal meningitis, they'll give prophylaxis to all, all um, sort of close contacts. So that's mainly sort of household contacts, kissing contacts, if it's in hospital, it'll be healthcare workers who've only had contact with respiratory secretion. So often we have sort of healthcare workers who are really worried after they've had contact with these children, but really it needs to be sort of mouth to mouth resuscitation or if you were intubating someone that you would fit the criteria uh, for prophylaxis. Uh, and in terms of kind of how, what's the absolute risk of getting uh, kind of meningococcal kind of meningitis or sepsis if you've had contact with someone. 
the risk is actually sort of one in 300, so it, it is quite low. And the, one of the studies have found that the number you need to treat is about 200, you know, you need to treat prophylaxis about 200 to prevent one infection. But still, it's a serious infection, so you can maybe justify that. Uh, and then for Haemophilus influenza B, we give rapamycin prophylaxis to households <coughs> if the case is less than 10, or if there's just an immunocompromised or vulnerable person in the household. <coughs> uh, and this is just about Yeah, these are the, some of the complications that we've talked about, but absolutely, as we mentioned, kind of deafness is, is the thing that we see in the lot of, and these are the overall mortality rates. So in adults, if they do get strep pneumomeningitis, they do quite badly. You know, we've had quite a few deaths, partly partly because of the patients that who are old who get pneumococcal are old, so they have lots of comorbidities. Um, so that was about meningitis. Um, I've taken up a lot of time talking about meningitis, but does anyone have any questions? Okay. The next case is from the last hospital I worked at where the details are a little bit sketchy, so apologies, I haven't got any of the images or all the numbers from the child, but it was just one that was interesting to talk through. So it was a boy who was seven years old who sort of fit in well, uh, comes to ED, uh, sort of playing in the garden, falls over, above his right eyelid um, has that stereoscript discharge home um, uh, and then comes back sort of 12 hours later the parents are a bit concerned about uh, spreading redness around the wound and swelling of the eye child's complaining that the eye is swollen so uh, apologies this isn't actually an image of child's stolen shamefully from the internet um, but what do you think if you saw a child with that kind of history and eyes kind of looking like that what might you be a bit worried about be worried? concerned around preceptual versus orbital cellular very good yeah yeah absolutely um so yes that that was right so new about pneumology and they also thought mm, could be orbital cellulitis uh, and the critical sort of construction of metronidazole in that hospital. So that's what he was tasked on and had some cultures done. So preceptal versus postceptal or orbital cellulitis can be tricky kind of to tell apart sometimes. So preceptal is sort of confined to the soft tissues that are anterior to the orbital septum. And to remind you of the days of your anatomy, because I couldn't really remember this, so I had to look this up. That's the orbital septum there. Uh, there's sort of superior uh, and inferior, and anything anterior to this is preceptal, and uh, anything posterior to this is postceptal. Uh, so with pre preceptal cellulitis, it mainly tends to be sort of younger children, sort of less than five years old, eyelid erythema, sort of um, edema, and usually sort of local spread from sort of upper respiratory tract infection or sort of minor trauma. Uh, and um, yeah, we sort of in this trust kind of our, our antibiotics, sort of empirical antibiotics, sort of comoxiflav, seven days, that's what we would normally do. Orbital cellulitis, on the other hand, is much more worrying. Uh, <coughs> and these are the ones that you'd want to get ophthalmology and ENT involved sooner rather than later. And that tends to be sort of older children, sort of seven to 12 year old. Uh, and that can happen again kind of extension of uh, infection from periorbital structures 
but also after just kind of even relatively minor trauma like this child had, you know, um, the worry, you know, everyone has to kind of cut some losers. Uh, or you can get sort of hematogenous spread as well. And in these ones, we would, uh, you know, advise you normally to try and do some blood cultures, um, particularly if they're febrile, uh, and get some imaging as well, because that's a way that you can tell whether it's proceptual involvement or not. Um, and so for 36 hours later, the PEDS team, um, who were sort of looking after the child, was a bit concerned that the levels is now spreading and it's going to towards the other eye. Um, and the parents also had noticed sort of a rash <laughs> on his torso, but the ophthalmology registrar felt like actually the child was better and wanted to discharge him. The call was sort of the microbiology saying, what's the oral switch? Like, can we send this child home? <laughs> okay, <laughs> bit worried. So, based on that kind of history using some bacteria, what do you think might be uh, kind of the bug that might be causing this? that list of things. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> someone said, yeah, good. Anything else? Group A strep. Group A strep, yeah. So group A strep would be, yeah, those two are the ones you'd be worried about because those are the ones that will make you sick and if it's spreading, that, those are the things that you'd worry about. So. I have to mention a bit of microbiology, as I am a microbiologist. Uh, so this is kind of a gram stain, um, and what you can see there are um, gram-positive cocci. Uh, so gram-positive, purple, gram-negative are pink. Uh, cocci, as the name suggests, sort of um, spherical. And group A strep typically forms these long, long chains. So actually, we can look at the microscope and say, oh, uh, and that's why we ask you all these questions in, a his, in the history. What's in the history? Is there worry about group A strep? Because we can then look down the microscope and say, actually, the ground looks like it could be a group A strep. And this is what it looks like on sort of blood data. So it hemolyzes blood again. It's a very kind of typical um, uh, uh, group A strep. Um, this is kind of basic microbiology. I won't dwell on this too much. But basically, the Kind of one of the key differences between gram positive and gram negative bacteria is that gram positive bacteria have this really thick um, cell wall that's made of peptidoglycan, uh, and whereas gram negatives have a much thinner cell wall, but they have this uh, kind of thick lipid layer called lipopolysaccharide, and that's kind of what is uh, involved in mediating shock in gram negatives. Um, and this I will tell you a little bit about, um, about how we now we identify bacteria. So the way we identify bacteria has changed quite a lot, especially in sort of the last 10 years. And now we actually have newer technologies. Um, so Moldytop, you've, heard, you've probably heard us talking about this kind of technology a bit. Uh, and basically it generates kind of a mass pixel uh, fingerprint that's kind of a unique signature to each bacteria. Um, so you'll hear us kind of, when we turn our blood cultures to you, we'll say this is the gram result, and then we might bring you later in the day and say it's a Staph aureus or it's an E. coli. Uh, and uh, how we know that is we take sort of blood or uh, a colony of bacteria and we fix it onto this metal plate with a matrix, and then it gets bombarded with a load of lasers, uh, which kind of splits it up into different ions based on mass and charge and it gets accelerated through a vacuum and then picked up on a detector. And so this detector kind of comes up with this kind of unique fingerprint 
which is unique to each bacteria. So we can say this signature is very like 99% characteristic of E. coli, so that's what it is. So normally, traditionally, we would have had to wait for 24 hours for the bug to grow. Um, and sometimes you just want to know what's the organism, because then we can target our treatment a bit better. So um, this is what we're using now. So it's great in terms of identifying organisms quickly, uh, and you know, it's helped with antibiotic stewardship. What it's not very good at is it's not great at identifying streptococci, particularly streptomoniae, um, and it's not great if you've got a mixed culture. So if you've got like a pus sample, say from abdomen, we don't put them through here at the outset. Uh, it's mainly for sort of sterile fluids that it's more helpful um, because it's mixed. That that doesn't work. Um, so group A strep, we see a lot of. Uh, what type of infection do you see with this drug? Very good. Um, yes, very good. Yeah. Scarlet fever, yeah, all sorts really, yeah. So scarlet fever, pneumonia, uh, we see quite, the, the big peaks are sort of after, in the winter, sort of, um, or after, after flu, after chickenpox, we've had quite a few, but in cases on peace ITU recently, uh, skin and soft tissue, Nectarizing fasciitis. And that's the thing you're worried about with this child, with that story of the rash kind of spreading. We know that's that's very typical of group A strep. Uh, and part of the reason that uh, group A strep is very virulent is because it's got all, all these many different virulence factors. Um, I won't bore you too much with it, but it's got a capsule that makes, that means it can kind of evade phagocytosis. Uh, and it uh, make, makes all these toxins, it is pyrogenic um, toxins, that's what gives you the rash, typically. Um, and it produces these kind of various um, toxins and substances. So you can get toxic shock as well, um, mediated by some of these uh, toxins. Hyaluronidase is kind of an enzyme that it produces that basically helps it to spread along fascial layers, and that's part of what's happening in kind of neck fascia, it will spread along plane. Um, so the risk factors, kind of as your colleague mentioned, sometimes very trivial, like this child had very minor trauma, uh, recent surgery, um, viral things we mentioned, steroids, diabetes, um, burns is the other second mistaken. These ones are kind of less applicable, but we see quite a lot in IV drug users and homeless kind of um, patients. Uh, and it used to be one of the commonest sources of um, pupil sepsis. Uh, particularly the days before antibiotics and good infection control, but fortunately they've been kind of less of that now. Um, so this child had necrotizing fasciitis and it was pretty bad. Uh, and he basically had uh, neck fascia, you know, as you know, is kind of quite extensive infection of fascial and muscle layers. And really, it's an emergency if you're suspecting this. Get a surgeon to see kind of uh, fairly promptly. It's not something co we see commonly, luckily, in children. We see more of it in adults, mainly because they're kind of comorbid and obese. Uh, but fortunately, it's rare in children. And as you mentioned, sort of group A strep, Staph aureus are sort of the two commonest ones. Sometimes you can get sort of polymicrobial infections, like brown negative, pedicular, that type of thing. One of the key features is pain, so pain out of proportion with the injury. Sometimes you look at something and say, oh, that's, that seems like it's a trivial injury. Why have you got? a lot of pain, 
by the time you read like the classical description of necrosis, it's usually quite late. Um, in terms of investigations, kind of imaging, uh, blood cultures through them, that's quite helpful. Uh, and uh, the, the main surgical treatment really is the bridelent uh, plus antibiotics. So uh, these are just uh, some more pictures I've stolen from the internet of the kind of bad neck back uh, at the foot there. Um, and to talk briefly about toxic shock, um, again, you can get toxic shock uh, with or without the neck sash, again, scaphoids and glutate strep, uh, and hypertension, blood multi-organ organ involvement is kind of the key thing there. Uh, and this is just to talk briefly about glutate strep, uh, bacteremia. Uh, in your kind of cohort, the, the ones that we see, tend to see it mainly in is the under ones. Uh, and slide. Uh, this is data from like the last couple of years. Um, so that that was data kind of streamlined from last year. Um, it seems generally like the rates are increasing, and they're not public health aren't really sure why. The stereotypes that we're seeing are also slightly different, and they think it might be more virulent as well. Um, if your patient's panallergic, what would be your alternatives? Uh, yeah, to give them morphine. Anything else? Dank, good. Yeah. So dank will be reliably active against. Um, Glutase, strepto, streptococci, generally. Um, other options you could use are just things like, you probably wouldn't use things like clary and doxycycline um, in someone who's septic or unwell. Uh, but the reason I'm showing you this is because there's, um, <coughs> we're seeing kind of more resistance to things like clindamycin and macrolides, particularly in children or, or patients who say they had a penicillin algae before, because these are the antibiotics you get. Actually, when we are authorizing reports, you can you can actually look at the report and say this child or this person's penicillin allergic because they will be invariably macrolide resistant. Okay, just bear that in mind. Vanc would be fine because uh, we haven't seen vancomycin resistance in um, streptococci, these types of streptococci, fortunately. Um, so uh, yeah, so this child, the final diagnosis is the next sash of both eyes, and he had quite extensive debridement that was found in the CT. Um, fortunately for him, he actually had kind of a good outcome uh, and no impairment of his eye movements, um, which was kind of a luckiest case, mm -hmm. but yeah, it could have very easily gone wrong and he needed to have sort of a long, long course of antibiotics. Um, these are, I'm just gonna show you some like kind of gory pictures, so look away now <laughs> if you don't want to see it. Uh, these are uh, some from uh, from a case report. Again, of a, a child who was kicked in the eye and had quite bad neck sash. Uh, and here you can see kind of he was extending towards the eyelid. Uh, and he had, you know, given this, he had kind of a reasonable recovery, but he, he couldn't close his eyes fully. He needed to have further surgery to correct that. Uh, this is even worse. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah, that bad. Yeah. So you know, um, this was a four-year-old. Child. Um, and again, <laughs> quite, this is a Klebsiella infection actually. Uh, I think this is from India. Luckily, we didn't see kind of this bad infection. So, yeah, it can be quite nasty. And we had a patient in 
adult patient in eye hospital, I think a few years ago, who died with this kind of very similar story. <coughs> it can spread very quickly, so um, yeah, I can be wary of it. With this kind of, um, this child, how long do you think they should be isolated for? With group A strep, how long do you tend to isolate them? <coughs> Hello? So the, the kids are isolated after they've played around for the same time. Okay, fine. What kind of infection was that? Yeah. The intrusion? Yeah, it was like, I think it was a chicken pox. Okay, fine. Yeah. Yeah, so it depends a bit. Yeah, it depends. But if you tried it, they say looking at hours. So it depends what infection you're treating. Yeah. For most things it's twenty four hours unless they've got open skin lesions, then it would be till their discharge or till we've got the exposure. Um, before uh, this is mainly kind of historical before the days of good antibiotic stewardship or, or actually even antibiotic infection control uh, in old hospitals this is this is what killed a lot of patients because kind of started going from one patient to the next and it was just easy to spread fairly easily. So that's where this has come from. Um, in what scenario would you give like antibiotic prophylaxis with group A strep or would you give antibiotic prophylaxis? That's the thing you've come across. Rheumatic no. fever. Pardon? Rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever, okay. I mean we don't routinely give prophylaxis um, to household contact unless they're symptomatic for the other scenario you'd give it in is to is to mother and baby if either of them develop um, disease in the neonatal period, um, and the other scenario, which is rare, but I have seen before, where uh, there's two or more um, cases of invasive infection in the household. Um, so I had I had a couple of cases like this of father and daughter. The father was unwell with toxic shock in ITU, and then the child had septic arthritis. In that kind of scenario, we just gave prophylaxis to the whole household. It was, I think it was the like, group of strep and meningitis, and that could have been like a nursery. Yes. So, would you ever consider doing that? Might do, yeah. Yeah, so there's like specific guidelines for that. So, normally, we would discuss it with public health if we think there's an outbreak, it's kind of risk benefit thing, but they have clear guidance for that. Um, so, now I'm just going to move on to my final case. Uh, I'll try and whiz through this really quickly so that I'm not keeping you too long. Okay. Uh, so this is back bone and joint infections, and I'm going to go through kind of two cases with sort of common pathogens. Um, what's the most common infective cause that you see out of the list of those? Sa yeah, sap aureus. Yeah, sap aureus is the one that's commonest in all age groups and actually also in adults. Um, Kingella kinge is another pathogen that we see in the under five. I'll talk about that in a minute. So common pathogens kind of depend a bit on how old they are. Um, this is from the European kind of guidelines. I don't really know why they've got gonorrhea in that because we really don't see that. Luckily, we don't see that commonly. Uh, and um, we won't go through these definitions too much. It's just talking about acute osteomyelitis. We know it's inflammatory process of the bone and bone destruction. 
a huge task in my life is usually they tend to present sort of within five days, five to seven days. Septic arthritis is uh, acute infection of the joint. Discitis, we don't see much, luckily, in children. Um, kind of intervertebral discs and the vehicle vertebrae. And pyomyositis is kind of an infection of skeletal muscles and can form abscesses, uh, common with sort of things like aureus. So, uh, so two cases, one of them was an eight-year-old boy, he's got eczema, he's been unwell for a week, he's had a sort of classic story of being out in the summer, being bitten by an insect, GP gave him some antibiotics and cellulitis, and then he comes back in a few days later with quite high temperatures, fever of 40, and he's complaining of lots of different, the pain in lots of different regions, of elbows, um, in both his legs, and he's at his third. Uh, and the second case is slightly different, sort of a, a younger child, so 12 months old, pain, uh, sort of swelling in the right elbow, and it was actually noticed by the nursery that she wasn't using her arm. Um, and she wasn't particularly unwell, but mainly choroidal symptoms, seen in A&E, uh, and they sort of followed her up in the practice clinic, and then she was really so. Uh, so um, the first case, we sort of had Sort of swelling and pain in multiple joints, uh, and ha had MRI which showed actually multifocal osteomyelitis and septic arthritis. Um, and the second one, uh, the child was reasonably well uh, with low inflammatory markers, but had a, a swollen elbow uh, and imaging su suggestive of septic arthritis. So, two quite different presentations there. What do you think might be the pathogens in the first and the second one? The first one is about the skin. Yes. Yeah. Stap. Yeah. We mentioned the stap always in the commonest one. So yeah, could be. Did they all have a prodromal epi? Yes. Choroidal symptoms. Would scrapie tend to be sicker? Yeah. Kingella, very good. We'll talk about Kingella in a minute. These, this was the imaging of the first and second case. I mean, to be honest, I didn't see anything massively abnormal with this, <laughs> but I think this, this, I think this area was kind of reported as being a bit abnormal. And this is the second one where they had kind of new bone formation. Uh, so what are the risk factors for bone and joint in infections? Some of them you've already kind of mentioned. Yeah, yeah, viral kind of symptoms preceding trauma. Lots of different things. Um, sickle cell, we see. Uh, I think we've had we had a case kind of last year of a child who had sickle cell, who had um, kind of GI prodrome, and then we grew salmonella from the blood cultures. Uh, and uh, she had a kind of whole body MRI because the bone is like the place that it goes to because they've got abnormal bone. Had multiple osteomyelitis. Uh, I think we mentioned kind of post chicken pox again, gute strep, staph aureus, uh, trauma, uh, TB. Luckily, we see kind of um, rarely. Um, and so, which skeletal sites are bone and joint infections most common in? Good, yeah. Long bones uh, and joints of the lower limb. 
So mainly kind of cleaner and sillier in terms of joints, mainly knees rather than hips. Uh, this is in children. So diagnostics, what, what can you do in terms of trying to make a diagnosis would be yeah, stick a needle in it. Excellent. If you can convince the old ladies to do that. It's really well for their little Yeah. Not that we're actually into that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, ease up of the bloods, imaging, ultrasound, um, MRI. Uh, and imaging can be normal sometimes. You do it quite early. Um, so, if they have persistent symptoms, re image them. Uh, blood cultures before antibiotics. Uh, and sampling. Uh, and again, we've got newer PCR tests that we can do to try and pick up these bugs. Uh, and we have sort of specific PCRs, or what's called kind of broad range PCRs, P16, PCRs. And that's looking at sort of a targeted region in the bacterial ribosome. So when it's positive, it's actually really helpful. And that's on the fluid, not blood. Yes, on the fluid, yeah. Uh, particularly helpful for these types of organisms like Kingella, which are very difficult to culture. And often these patients have had lots of antibiotics before they've had sampling. So if we actually have the sample uh, and it's no good, you know, speak to us and then we can send them off because it's not done locally at the moment. We need to send it to a reference lab. Uh, but hopefully over time we can, we, uh, you know, we'll be able to do this and test more locally and <coughs> more timely results. Can I ask you just a Yeah. It's not uncommon for a child to come in with a swollen joint to get treated with septic arthritis. It might take Yes. To a point, they aspirate it three, four, five days later. Yeah. Maybe in the GA, once yeah. organised it, and it's sterile. Yeah. How? What's the window of positive culture if you've given IV antibiotics? How, how long does it take to actually clear? I know obviously you can use Yeah. So it depends. So joint fluids get processed in a slightly different way. Okay. Um. So we put up kind of initial plates, and it has what's called extra cultural enrichment cultures. Okay. The whole culture process is about ten days. Okay. Um, but if you flag those patients early to us, mm -hmm. then we can let the lab know and say, if this is culture negative, send it to 16F PCR. And how, and how long after giving antibiotics would that give, would that make your, the findings of the sterile? So it can be quite quick sometimes, okay. yeah. Well, it depends on the burden of infection. I can't give you one answer to that, mainly because we don't know. Yeah, and we have seen patients before who've been um, they sample culture negative, yeah. ongoing infection. We say go back, mm -hmm. and the second sample is positive. Mm -hmm. So it depends on how many bacteria are there as well. Uh, but if you have those types of patients, discuss them with us early so that we can make sure the sample doesn't just get chucked away. That we can do molecular tests on it. The problem at the moment is that we can't give you a very timely result. But it'll be sort of a week or ten days. Uh, but at least if you discuss the history, we can say, hmm, this is more likely a staphylococcus infection, or this is the second case. You know, from the clinical history, we said, this is probably Kingella, let's send it for Kingella PCR, and actually came back positive. Procalcitonin, I was going to mention very quickly. Have you guys come across this? Probably those of you are working here have come across the PCT. Um, so it's uh, it's um, produced by sort of the C cells of the thyroid gland, um, and in health, there's only very, very, very small amount that's found um, kind of in your body. Uh, and in response to, so this is very specific for bacteria, so it's great for kids actually, because 
so diff so difficult sometimes to differentiate between you know bacterial and viral infection. So give us specifics about bacteria, uh, and what, when when you get bacterial infection, you have rise of these all these pro-inflammatory mediators that can um, push your PCP up, uh, and it goes up much more quickly than CRP. So it peaks at about sort of six hours, uh, I think, um, much sooner, uh, and its half life is about. 22 hours. So, uh, some of you might have kind of heard that there's a trial, a big trial going on at the moment called the BAT trial, uh, where we're looking at the PCP in pediatrics. So, uh, this is quite helpful in terms of trying to guide us whether it's, uh, these are not the, the cases where you think this child's definitely got sepsis, um, definitely give antibiotics to this. But for those great cases where you think, is it a virus, is it a bacteria, you know, we're not sure, it can help um, kind of uh, to guide whether to start antibiotics or not. And it can also be quite helpful trying to decide whether to stop antibiotics or not. So I think the batch trial is due to finish maybe later this year or next year. So it will be interesting to see the results with that. You can't request these at the moment, can you? Uh, not at the moment, routinely, um, unless you're working on these ITU. And I, even that, it, it's kind of they're randomized too. But once we have the data, um, you know, it will be something that will be rolled out here. Um, quickly about empirical treatment. So uh, the first one, the first case was porphyrous infection, uh, and the second case was a Shingello infection. What antibiotics might we want to use to cover those? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, flu shots uh, and so on. And this is our UHP guidance here. So Kingella we mainly see in the very in the younger age group, uh, which is why we have chromoxiflav. If you wondered why we're giving chromoxiflav, and as soon as they're six or above, we're giving flu shots. It's mainly because of that. Um, in adults, we we just don't see Kingella really. So it seems to be mainly kind of childhood, and they'll be quite well. That's the other clue: that well, low CRP. Um, and in terms of how they got on, so Tuye um, had some quite nasty infection of involving multiple joints and needed kind of multiple washouts and they kind of all the greenish fluid and we did staphylococcus and that. Uh, and that child needed kind of quite a long course of antibiotics, six weeks in total. Um, and the second child uh, also had a, a washout, and as I said, uh, the culture was negative, but the, uh, the PCR was positive for King Della and had chromoxiflav um, for a total of six weeks and made a good recovery. And that was a CRP kind of trend for the second child. It's not unusual actually for it to be just less than 10. We see that um, not infrequently. Um, won't go too much into how to manage it. Basically, depends on whether it's complicated or uncomplicated. Uh, and um, really, we tr usually we try and convince the surgeon to try and debride as much of that infected tissue uh, if they can do that. Uh, and then they tend to have sort of uh, a number of weeks of antibiotics. Um, the duration depends partly on sort of the pathogen and what infection you're treating and whether they've got a bacteremia. <coughs> For example, if they've got staph aureus bacteremia, we tend to give at least two weeks of IV. Um, but if it's, if it's not a bacteremia, then you can give sort of shorter courses, IV. 
Uh, and for septic arthritis, we tend to give them two, two weeks of antibiotic, longer of, if it's osteomyelitis, it's four weeks. Um, and we tend to give long courses if they're sort of relapse of recurrent infections uh, and um, if they're very young, so less than three months old. Uh, and when we pick um, oral antibiotics, um, we the ones we use orally are, are not necessarily the same as we use IV. So we'll give IV flu, um, IV flu clocks if they're on IV, but we're not keen generally on giving oral flu clocks. We might have noticed that partly because kids don't like to take it and they spit it out, uh, and partly because uh, it, it's not great in terms of bone absorption or penetration into the bone. When we pick something oral, we want to make sure it's going to get into that area that you're going to give it. Otherwise, it's just no point doing it. So we tend to pick things like clindamycin or clotrimoxazole, catalepsin we use quite a lot. You might, you might have wondered kind of why that was. Uh, but that's the reason why we're trying to give something that's going to get to the right area. So, I mean, lots of different pathogens there, and we will guide you. You know, quinolones, again, are quite good. Lots of studies have been done um, with burn and joint infections with quinolones, so we quite like using them. So we will get it gets into the bone quite well. And actually, unlike adults who run into problems with quinolones, where they get kind of, they snap their tendons or they get like long QT, we tend to see that kind of less in pediatrics. So that's a good thing. Uh, and you know, complications we kind of <laughs> sort of talked about uh, abscesses, chronic osteomyelitis, and deformity. Uh, and this is my last slide. Um, it's just to talk about the Aviva trial uh, that was done in adults and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine last year. And this is really changing the way that we're managing bone and joint infection in adults. Hopefully, we can build it out into kind of the pediatric world as well. Uh, this is kind of a big RCT that was done in 26 different centers. Some of the consultants here were involved as well with this. Um, so they basically randomized patients to have either IV or oral treatment seven days after they had surgery or, or after seven days of doing um, uh, antibiotic treatment uh, for patients with bone and joint infections. And basically they found that the treatment failure rates were the same in IV versus uh, the oral. So that all antibiotics were non-inferior to giving um, IV therapy. Um, so hopefully over time, it's just, it's just about picking the right agent and something that your patient can tolerate, um, especially when we're giving these to kids for kind of weeks, watch, and, and we want to make sure that they can actually take it and tolerate it. And presumably this will be like drop therapy of the therapy that, that will make sure they are just... Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It can be an issue sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of it's, it's hard to convince a surgeon sometimes we're saying, Oh, you know, you really can switch to oral, it's just picking the right oral agent, but they feel very nervous doing that. It's finding the right patient. It's not some you know, if it's a straightforward infection then they're not bacteremic and they've responded clinically. You know, we're trying to push them to give all sooner actually and get the patient appetite to go. Um so that was it really. Um I'm gonna